I want to ask you to just bow in prayer with me for a moment and let's go to the Lord and ask Him to bless our time as we look to His Word together. Our Father, it is with a profound sense of gratitude that we are gathered here together. As we mentioned earlier, we we don't gather because it's our right or because it's somehow uh, something we deserve but we gather because we are in awe of the fact that before the foundation of the world, you chose us for salvation. And so by the command of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, who is our master and we are his slaves, we gather together each Lord's day to remember Christ, to renew our commitment to the new covenant, to renew our obedience to you, to humble ourselves before a mighty God who will exalt us at the proper time. To remember that Christ is the one with the burning eyes of fire who walks among the churches and judges and corrects and helps and supports and loves. We recall that our Savior, though physically seated at your throne, still fully God, fully man, is sovereignly present here with us through the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. And so we pray that this time today, one prayer only, that the head of the church would be pleased with our hearts and with our love for Him and our obedience. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Romans 16, now I urge you, brothers, to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. 1 Corinthians 16, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith, examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize about yourselves that Christ Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Galatians 6, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Galatians 6, again, for from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, the Apostle Paul says, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Colossians 4, devote yourselves to prayer being watchful in it in thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5, admonish the unruly, abstain from every form of evil. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, now we command you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from every brother who walks in an unruly manner. 1 Timothy 6, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, turning aside from godless and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some, while professing, have gone astray from the faith. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4, Alexander the coppersmith showed me much harm, and the Lord will award him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our words. Paul instructs Titus in Titus 3, 
Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Paul wrote to Philemon, At the same time also, prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I may graciously be given to you. Paul was coming to check to see if Philemon had followed through on forgiving a repentant brother. This is a warning that accountability was on its way. Hebrews 13 says, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teaching. Hebrews 13, again, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they will do this with joy and not with groaning, for this would be unprofitable for you. James 5, My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 5, be of sober spirit, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Second Peter 3, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest having been carried away by the error of unprincipled men, fall from your own steadfastness. First John 5, the Apostle John says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Second John See to yourselves that you do not lose what we accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Third John, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not welcome what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will bring to remembrance his deeds. Jude, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions. Worldly-minded, not having the Spirit. Revelation 22. The Lord Jesus Christ, I bear witness to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Now, if you were tracking with me, I just read from the end of every New Testament letter. And every New Testament letter contains stern, serious warnings. The New Testament contains the glorious truths of the gospel. It's through the New Testament that we know Christ. But the end of every letter says, but watch out. Why is this? Why do the epistles of the New Testament contain warnings to the church at the end? Every one of them. Here's the reason. No church can coast on autopilot. No church can just coast. We're very aware of that here. At Grace Bible Church, the Lord has done remarkable things, astounding things, things I have never seen in my lifetime in the ministry In just the 10 years I've had the privilege of being here, we've seen the number of members grow in waves and and you seem to come in all at once every once in a while. I don't know how that works. It's just what the Lord does. Out of the 10 years I've been here, we've baptized new believers in Christ every year. That's a glorious, glorious thing to think about. The Lord has added to our ranks of qualified shepherds with seven elders five full-time paid staff members, pastoral interns. We have multiple men who are just members of our church who have, 
who have Master of Divinity degrees. We have a tremendous core of shepherds. We've now sent our first church member to pastor another church. And in the coming months, we're going to be doing that again. We have several men training for the gospel ministry here in our midst that we'll eventually send out. The Lord has provided financially for us in abundance. We, we purchased our new facility, just so you know, long before we thought we would be able to. We thought we were going to be saving our nickels for a lot longer. And just this past Friday, if you drove by the interesting looking front of our building, you saw that we've started demolition. So we're, we're in on phase two now. That's, there's no going back. And this may be something you're less aware of. The impact of Grace Bible Church is being felt far beyond these walls. And we're so thankful for that. We have more people listening to our messages all over the world than ever before. Our books are being read by people we don't even know. Just on Friday in a different city in California, I I met a man for the very first time and he about squeezed my shoulder off and I said, why are you hurting me and and what have I done to you? And, and, And he said, he said, one of the books that your church puts out got me through the hardest time of my life. I wouldn't have survived without that. Through your support, we have six missionaries around the world proclaiming the gospel, counting Grace Bible Church as among their most faithful and loyal supporters. Through your support, and you may not be aware of this, I've had the opportunity to now train dozens of church planting pastors. I get to be a part of that every year in training men who are, who are planting churches all over the world. I had the opportunity to do that just this past week. Not only are we having an impact on those outside our walls, we're having an impact on other entire churches outside of our walls. Just a few weeks ago, I met with a pastor of another church in California, and he, I, I asked him a question, well, show me what your, your ministries are, are looking like. They, what, how are you structured? Uh, draw me an organizational chart. I like to see pictures. And so he started showing me, and I, I said, that looks really familiar. And he said, yeah, we've modeled our whole church after Grace Bible Church of Bakersfield. And they're not the only ones. Our elders whether you know this or not, are having the opportunity to speak into the lives of elders in other churches to assist them in their gospel faithfulness and to, to help them along the way and to lift them up as needed. Our small groups are thriving. Our Bible Training Institute, we, we just finished our fourth time through and, and we're going to be revamping it and, and elevating it even more with, with Jay coming on board to really take that over. Our student ministries, if some of you were, were here uh, the other evening for our fundraiser, our student ministry summer camp is hosting for summer camp this year five other churches. And, and they're relying on our leadership and our help and our organization. We're sending 45 of our own students, but also dozens more from these other churches. Our women's ministry is thriving. Our men's ministry is thriving. Our counseling ministry, well, we never want it to thrive. We want it to, to die, but to... When it's needed, it's thriving. Men are being discipled. Women are being discipled. You are, I hear this all the time. You're sharing your faith with people in the community all the time. And remember, you are sometimes the only Christ anybody's going to see. I'm flabbergasted at the Lord's goodness to use our little church in ways I I never thought I'd personally witness in my lifetime. 
What church our size starts a, a Bible conference? We, we've had one for almost 10 years. And it is the Lord's goodness to us. It's that very reason that today in the spirit of the warnings found at the end of every single New Testament letter that I come to you today the spirit of warning, a spirit of pleading, a hopeful spirit, but a serious spirit because a local church left to simply coast on the good things that God has done will invariably drift every time unless those charged with shepherding her grab a hold of the rudder and right the ship. My heart is burdened deeply today and I'm sorry for showing that. It's burdened heavily with the weight of responsibility that we have to our Savior. The hearts of all of our elders are burdened. A couple of months ago, I preached a message called How to Ruin the Local Church. It was a message intended to hopefully provide a general corrective. But today, I need to be more specific. And I'm not really going to preach a sermon today. Your bulletin says I'm preaching from Matthew 5. And normally, if, if you dropped in for the first time today to hear an expository sermon, I, this was an unfortunate day for you, and I'm sorry for that, and we pray that you'll return. But every once in a while in a family, the leadership of the family just needs to say time out. And we need to stop and be reminded of what the standards of the family are. The family of God is no different. So today isn't really a sermon, it's just a family reminder Because just like in your family, when challenges with individuals in the family begin to impact the entire family, then it's time to stop and to reset and to be reminded of God's benchmarks and be reminded of God's expectations. And it's at this point where we have to walk through this together as a family. It it reaches a point where it's too much for one man. It's certainly too much for just our elders to walk through alone. And we have to walk through it together. Never, never in my decade plus at Grace Bible Church have I seen such blatant disregard by so many for the leadership of this church. Slanderous accusations, both against the elders as a whole and against multiple individuals, including myself. Refusals to repent in humility in regards to healing broken relationships when we call them to do so with biblical reconciliation, which comes with humility and a desire for closeness and unity and love and bonding together. Not just a, I'm sorry. That just says how I feel. That's not repentance. Members of the church, more than I've ever seen, being willing to listen to slander and to gossip. And if you've been here for 10 years, you should know better. In the past several months, you're unaware of this, our elders have invested a composite hundreds of hours in meetings and tears and prayer and groaning and pleading only to be met in some cases with obstinance and even vengeful attacks on the character of our elders both as a whole and individually. It's wasted weeks and weeks and weeks of time which could have been spent on productive ministry endeavors. I had to spend time on my anniversary trip on this. I had to spend time on my family trip this past week on this. In all my years at Grace, I have never encountered this level of selfishness. 
this lack of care that one or two or three or four being so obstinate affects the entire ministry. How satanic is that? And by our estimate that we know of, this sinful and unrepentant behavior has caused pain and heartache in the lives of at least three dozen people in the church, perhaps more that we don't know about. Our elders as a whole have suffered the loss of trust by some. Several individuals among us, including myself, have been accused baselessly of acting in corrupt and self-motivated fashion. It just boggles my mind. Anybody who wants to be corrupt, being a pastor is the last thing you want to do. Go into business, be corrupt there. At least you can make some money doing it. And what's the purpose of all this? Well, I'll tell you the purpose. It's obvious. It's Satan's purpose because we've been effective. Satan's purpose is to destroy or reduce the effectiveness of Grace Bible Church. I said this a couple of months ago, and I repeat this with all of my heart. We are not special. We are not unique. We are not somehow going to escape the natural consequences of refusing to heed Christ's warnings to be a purified church. I read with trembling Revelation 2 and 3 and I compare our church at this point to the churches of Thyatira and Sardis. In Revelation 2, the church of Thyatira had lots of love. Everybody hugged each other. They did great works for the gospel. They had all kinds of good things going, but they tolerated sin. And Jesus said, I'm coming after you if you don't stop. In Revelation 3, the church at Sardis They had a reputation of good works, but they were spiritually asleep at the wheel. And and Jesus said, wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you because no church can just rest on her laurels ever. And in fact, the effectiveness of a local church invites the attention of Satan and his evil ones. Isn't that obvious? It's obvious. And even when somebody becomes an elder or a deacon in our church, we, we, we jokingly say we're going to present you with a shirt with a big target on the front and back. Our church has a target on it. Attacks from the church come from two sources. The outside and the inside. And you say, well, those are the only two choices, so we're starting big here. From the outside, you have things like government interference, Difficulties with zoning laws, the internal revenue service. You know, all of you give donations right now that are tax deductible and you know there will come a day when the government yanks that and then we'll find out who really cares about the gospel ministry and who doesn't. Persecution from unbelievers and and, and we understand this. Those attacks from the outside, they simply expose who's truly loyal to Christ and who isn't. And ultimately, for 2,000 years of church history, attacks from the outside unify and strengthen the church. We experienced that during COVID. Countless churches did. The church of Jesus Christ, historically, when an outside force says, you'd better shut down, the church says, not on your life. Our Savior has commanded us to meet. What about from the inside? We know attacks from the inside will happen. Jesus said there would be tares among the wheat. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that even some from among themselves would create problems and attacks. Diotrephes attacked the church from the inside by not allowing the Apostle John's letters to get through to the whole church and he misrepresented 
the Apostle John to the church. The Ephesian church was attacked from the inside with the result that she lost her first love of Christ and one another. Attacks from the outside strengthened the church. But attacks from the inside caused pain and division and complete distraction away from the work of the gospel ministry of discipling those who yearn to grow in their sanctification. Attacks are never predictable and they're not even immediately recognizable. Just remember, Satan has had 7,000 years of experience in deceiving people. He knows what he's doing. Attacks from the inside may come from people you have known, cared about, loved, been in Bible study with. Satan makes his bread and butter on surprise and on catching the most spiritually vulnerable asleep at the wheel in a vulnerable moment and catching as many as he can in his net of deception. And if he catches enough, then the church's reputation goes down the drain and its impact on the community for Christ goes down to nothing. That's Satan's whole job. He couldn't care less about who's right and who's wrong. He just wants to make enough flat tires that the church can't move forward anymore. What what is the church about? If you really boil down what the New Testament says of the church, try to make this simple. You can boil down the church to three words. Regeneration, mission, and leadership. I'll tell you why I'm explaining this to you. Regeneration. The church is the spirit and dwelt people of God during this age. The church is not all those who attend a meeting called a church, but only those who are regenerate and in Christ. That's the first, that's the basis of the church. Second way we could describe the church from the New Testament, mission. The church has a twofold mission from Colossians 1.28, to proclaim the name and glory and mission and salvation and word of Christ, to proclaim Christ. And secondly, to present the church mature in every respect, being made holy and obedient to her Lord and Savior, training the church members to be effective, to be humble, to be submissive and obedient witnesses of the gospel to a dying world. Here's how Paul said it. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Regeneration, mission, and leadership. To accomplish this mission, God has given ordained men, pastors, elders, shepherds, to lead the church as Christ's representatives. These are men, the New Testament says, chosen by the Holy Spirit and ordained by other qualified shepherds. You may ask, what makes you a shepherd? I was chosen by the Holy Spirit and ordained by other qualified men and If you want to know who those qualified men are, I have them on my ordination certificate in my office. They are Chris Hamilton, Bob White, Dr. Lance Quinn, and Dr. John MacArthur. That's it. That's the church. Regeneration, mission, leadership. And Satan can mess up the church by rendering harm and destruction to any of those three elements. First, he could water down the gospel so much that the regenerate are now mixed up with the non-regenerate and and you can't tell the difference. Let's just let anyone in the church and and if we're going to let anyone in the church then you have to lower standards, standards, standards so that an unbeliever can act like a believer and everybody can look happy together and look really, really, really successful. Or Satan can mess up the mission of the church. 
He can convince some that Christ isn't preeminent. I am preeminent because I'm a paying customer to the church. That the mission of the church isn't to sanctify me and to correct me. It's to sanctify everyone else and correct everyone else. And the church ought to lower the standards of righteousness such that everyone can feel completely comfortable with whatever sin you choose to ignore in your life. You know what Paul said his mission for the church in Galatia was? He said that he felt like he was in the labor of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That was his his duty, to form Christ. So Satan can mess up the church in the area of regeneration, in the area of mission, and Satan can certainly mess up the church by going after her leaders. You've either experienced this or you've read about it or heard about it, the moral failure of just one leader in the church is a catastrophe. An elder or a pastor who has an affair who can't manage his moral life or the spiritual exhaustion and multi-front attacks on leaders, that can be a catastrophe when all the leaders are distracted to have to deal with one person or two people instead of shepherding the whole flock of God. Or the loss of reputation by enough people in the church can be a catastrophe. So I've been so burdened these past months, hoping a day like this didn't need to happen, but we need to do a reset. We need to be reminded of the standard to which new covenant believers in Christ are called so that the church can remain effective. Because the moment the top concern in your mind is you, Instead of the reputation of Christ and his bride, Satan is winning. And so to help us reset and recall the standard, the principles, I'm just going to give you two headings. I have a lot to cover in Scripture here, so I'm going to ask your indulgence to just let me read some Bible to you rather than having you turn. But two headings, I just want to talk to you about the duties of the shepherds and the duties of the sheep. First of all, the duties of the shepherds. Ephesians 4 says that qualified elders are a gift of Christ to the church. They're not elected politicians. They're they're not people who have a political affiliation and if you're not of the same political affiliation then you get to take pot shots at them. They're they're not somebody that that you, uh, well, they're in public office so I can say anything about them I want. No, they're gifts of Christ. God has been so gracious to gift us with numbers of qualified men. We see more on the way in development and in growth, and we're excited about that. The addition of qualified men, listen carefully, is a sign of God's blessing on the church. The qualified elders of a church are God's representatives to God's people. This was the the case with the prophets in the Old Testament, the apostles in the New Testament era, and it's the case now of the elders of the church. It's a role that all of our elders, all of our staff, the elders in training, we we take with deadly seriousness. We fear Christ. We fear our Lord. We fear the Master. We fear James 3.1. Let not many of you become teachers. We fear Hebrews 13.17 that we will give an account. Our duty is to sanctify and to spiritually feed the church and to purify the church as necessary. We adhere wholeheartedly to the practice of a plurality of elders, multiple men, all with equal authority. You see me every Sunday, but all of our elders are equal in authority. 
And this is such tremendous wisdom from God with a plurality of elders. What we have is a natural accountability to one another. And in major decisions concerning the church, our unanimous consent makes it much less likely that we're all simultaneously going to make a grave error. And, and just so you know this, we don't have a group of yes men who simply do what I tell them. I rely on their wisdom and knowledge of the word just as they rely on mine. We rely on each other. Our elders aren't perfect. Sinless perfection is certainly not a qualification, but they are all humble and they are all able to defer to one another. And what you don't see behind closed doors are the, the massive efforts we make at loving one another, deferring to one another, remaining unified, and listen carefully, with no personal agendas, but rather with one agenda. 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Paul's agenda, to see Christ formed in you. That's it. That's my prayer every Saturday night. For you is may Christ be formed in you. That's it. That's, that's all we're doing. It's a tremendous comfort to me. It's a protection to you to know that for the elders of Grace Bible Church to make a grave and seriously sinful mistake such as theological deviance or neglecting to shepherd the body of Christ in some terrible way, for that to happen, all the elders have to simultaneously suddenly abandon their principles, abandon the practice of many years, abandon the Word of God, abandon their love for Christ, abandon their love for the church, and not one of them have the courage to say to the others, why are you doing this? It's possible, but it's not very likely. It is a natural checks and balances system that God put into place that we are accountable to one another. How are we to shepherd? Two ways, basically. It's not complex. First of all, shepherds give that which is instructive from the Word of God. We give instructions. We read the Word. We explain the Word. Whether that's in in the pulpit in front of the whole body or one-on-one in counseling and so forth, we give that which is instructive But secondly, when there's a refusal to abide by that which is instructive, we are to give that which is corrective. 2 Timothy 3.16 bears this out clearly. That all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So instructive and corrective, that's it. It's the duty of the elders not only to shepherd the flock, but to purify the flock as needed. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 17, and he makes no bones about it, for it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The Apostle Paul gave these difficult instructions in 1 Corinthians 5, 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with any so-called brother. What does he mean by so-called brother? Somebody who has presented himself or herself as a Christian. Somebody who's entered into the waters of baptism and publicly said, I am here proclaiming my allegiance to Christ. Paul says, do not associate with any so-called brother if he is a sexually immoral person or greedy or an idolater or a reviler. That means one who harms others purposefully with words and does it continually without repentance or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I do with, with judging outsiders? Are you not to judge those who are within the church? 
But those who are outside, God will judge. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. What, what is God saying here? Oh, let me put it to you this way. How can we possibly hope to bring the good news of Christ and the good news of a transformational gospel from a church that isn't even attempting to live up to the standards of the new covenant itself? Isn't that what Israel did? Isn't that where they went wrong? God told them you were to be a kingdom of priests. You were to be a witness to the world that there is a holy God and you may come and worship Him. You know what happened? The nations surrounding Israel basically said, man, we're not even as bad as they are and we're pagans. They lost their witness. Why would the church somehow be the, the exception? You want to fail as a church? Lower the standards of holiness until there is no standard. Then we'll fail. Oh, we might fill the rafters with people, but we'll fail. Someone might say, oh, that's, that sounds so unloving. The church just needs to be filled with love. Let's just have more love. Jesus told the church at Thyatira, you're filled with love. But they tolerated sin and he said, I'm coming after you. Because they didn't deal with sin at the root, Jesus promised to come and purify that church with judgment. You know what the judgment on the church at Thyatira was? Jesus was going to kill members of the church until the church purified itself. He's deadly serious about sin. Because sin cost him his life. Your sin cost him his life. And when we play with it and say, oh, there's no standards. We'll just be love, love, love. Let's have no holiness whatsoever. What does God command? Be holy for I am holy. And isn't that the least we can do? Isn't that the very least? For a God who died for me. And so the church of Jesus Christ is not a game for the elders, it is a charge we take with utmost sobriety and seriousness. I have wept with every one of these men. Not just recently, but in times past. And the faithfulness of shepherding God's flock is not without cost. What you don't see are the tremendous personal trials endured by many of our elders at various times, which only adds to the weighty responsibility of shepherding God's people. They've endured personal suffering They've, had, they've placed a target on their own backs. And they do this willingly and purposefully. The elders have definite duties towards you. That is to do our very best to see Christ formed in you. Whatever that takes. You also have duties towards your elders. For the sake and the reputation of Christ. So what are the duties of the sheep? I'm going to go to a number of scriptures. I won't have you turn to them and I won't take a long time on this. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 really is a great starting point because it gives us the first three duties of the sheep. Paul lists three of them. The first duty of the sheep, the sheep are to know the shepherds. They're to know them, to know those who labor among you. And I, I know I kind of have a head start on that. I'm the easiest one to know because you know me through listening to hundreds and hundreds of sermons and we, we know each other that way. But you have many opportunities to know the other leaders you have them in shepherding visits. That gives you an opportunity. You serve in ministries alongside the shepherds. That gives you a chance to know them. 
They all have emails. They're here. One of the lies told about our elders is they're inaccessible. Do any of you have email? We're all accessible. We're here. We're available. We're not ivory tower. We don't have an ivory tower anyway, so we're not ivory tower elders. But I want you to know this. It is your duty to know the shepherds. Paul gives a second duty. The sheep are to regard shepherds highly in love because of their work. Regard shepherds highly in love because of their work. Not because they're perfect. Not because they have a personality you like or they're really good looking or they always do everything you agree with. But because of their work. More than half of our elders have full-time jobs outside of the church and yet they work hard at this. What does it mean to esteem them? This word means to give tremendous honor and respect and listen, and affection. Why is the affection so important? Why, why is that affectionate heart towards your leaders? Why is that key? Because it softens your heart and it makes you less vulnerable to believing the first lie that you hear about a godly elder. And I have to say, to be honest, this is something our church for the most part has done very, very well regarding your leaders highly in love. Until very recently, our elders have uniformly sensed your esteem and your affection regularly. There's a third duty of the sheep. The sheep are to be at peace among yourselves. 1 Thessalonians 5.13 Be at peace among yourselves. The distraction and the disruption to all the good things of the gospel ministry that the elders have had to engage in over the past several months all boils down to a refusal to obey this command. Be at peace among yourselves. By the way, when only one sin goes stubbornly unrepentant, sin begins to pile on and pile on and pile on. You tell one lie, you got to tell another to cover it up. You tell another lie to cover up the second one. You got to tell five more to cover those. And now you fear you might be cornered. So you got to tell a bunch of people some lies so that they can make sure and cover you because one of them or two of them or three of them will be caught off guard spiritually enough to believe your lie and come to your aid and defense. And it piles on and piles on and piles on. You understand that the Bible says liars have no part in the kingdom of heaven? but their part is in the lake of fire. You understand how serious that is? But beyond the commands of 1 Thessalonians 5, there are other duties of the sheep. I'll mention two more. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up what is needed so that, we, so that it will give grace to those who hear. I actually like the English Standard Version a little better because it better captures the root meaning of unwholesome. The ESV says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. What is corrupting talk? What does that speak of? We had the chance to visit with our little granddaughter this past week, and that was fun. And if you are around little babies, they, they get every illness on planet Earth, right? And have you ever been around a little baby, and you're just, you're just loving that moment, and then you're three inches away, and he sneezes a big glob of virus right in your face? That's corrupting talk. It's viral. It's 
poisonous. It's an infestation. It speaks of a disease. And you would say, well, that would never happen to me. Let me ask you two questions. In all honesty, before the Lord, do you have a lower opinion of a person than you used to? And second, is that opinion based solely on what someone else told you? If the answer to that is yes, then you've been corrupted. You've had the virus. It's been given to you. You've caught a virus of uncorrupted, of corrupted and unwarranted misjudgment. And, and you might even say, but I just heard the information. That wasn't my fault. I, I just sat there and just listened. Well, let me give you two answers to that. First of all, you did not hear the information. You heard a slant or a spin on a very small part of the information. Proverbs 18, 17 says, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. That's just common sense. The second thing I would say to that, listen to the stern warning of Proverbs 17, 4. I didn't write this. God wrote this. An evildoer gives heed to lips of wickedness. A liar gives ear to a destructive tongue. If you sit and listen and say, isn't that interesting? Let me give you counsel. And that sounds so good. No, according to Matthew 18, your job is to say, stop. You take that concern to that person, not me. This has nothing to do with me. If you sit and listen, and I know nobody here wants to be in that category, but you've come into the category of being an evildoer and a liar. It gets even worse, though. That's just the beginning. You know what it's like, that first little sneeze, (coughs) and you go, oh, no. Because you know 10 days of misery is coming. I'm on day eight right now, just in case you can't tell. It gets worse. Because if you've listened, particularly concerning one of your elders, guess what begins to happen? You begin to slowly have your heart and mind closed down to the preached word of God. And you quit listening. I've had people in recent weeks, people that I love, People with no real information and people whom I have personally committed no offense toward them express angry and vengeful hearts toward me and other elders. And when that happens, your heart shuts down. Every word that comes out of my mouth, every word that comes out of the mouth of the elders becomes like garbage to you. Listen, 1 Peter 2.2 says to eagerly long for the pure milk of the word. And you might say, well, I can do that. I can do that while listening to corrupt talk. No, you can't. There's a prerequisite to eagerly longing the pure milk of the word. The prerequisite is in verse 1. Verse 1 says you must lay aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander. And only then is your heart open to yearn for the pure milk of the word. I've seen it. I've been a pastor long enough to watch the people on the second, third, and fourth row who have been taking notes for five years and all in on the edge of their seats, love everything that comes out of this pulpit, Move their way slowly to the back. It's okay if you're sitting in the back. This is an illustration only. (laughs) Move their way slowly to the back and instead of taking notes, their Bibles are closed and they're sitting here like this. I've been around long enough to know it'd be easier for me to just walk to the back and say, why don't you just stop wasting everybody's time and just go? Because your heart shut down a long time ago. Why? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. 
it shuts your heart to the Word of God. And when your heart shuts to the Word of God, you stop growing in the Lord. When you stop growing in the Lord, your sanctification doesn't stall. It starts sliding backwards. Because now, you're starting to bow down to some wicked idols. Why do you think the Apostle John ended his glorious first letter saying, little children, keep yourself from idols? If you find yourself angry, closed off, especially when one of your elders speaks, you've closed your own heart with some sort of malignant, unrepentant malice or slander, whether it's you've actively participated or you've passively participated. One more duty, and this is the the simplest one. It's the most basic of all the duties of the sheep. It's found in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they will do this with joy and not with groaning for this would be unprofitable to you. It's terrifying to be accountable to God. You are accountable to your elders. We're accountable to the Lord. I've often said if the Lord ever gave me a choice, I'd much rather be a church sheep than a church shepherd. The accountability is high and there's nothing difficult about this. And notice the motivation to obey and submit is profitable to you. I have never once known a happy church member who can't stand his elders. That doesn't exist. And it's really a simple, simple choice. If you believe you have qualified elders, not perfect, but qualified then you obey and you submit and you give them joy and give profit to your own soul. If you do not believe that, if you believe that all the elders of Grace Bible Church can simultaneously be corrupted and not one of us has had the courage to stand for our convictions, then this is not the church for you. And and trust me, Christ will take care of business without your help. Just ask the churches of Ephesus, Thyatira, Sardom, Pergamum, Sardis, Pergamum, and Laodicea. But, if you do not believe we have qualified elders, you do not get to just stay and spread disunity, distrust, slander, gossip with limited or almost no real information and selfishly stop the work of the ministry in every area I listed at the beginning of this time together where God is blessing. That's the work of Satan. I don't think anybody in this room wants to be Satan's tool. And for that person, the elders have a duty that I mentioned earlier, Titus 3.10, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. And so the sheep are to know their shepherds, esteem them highly in love, be at peace among yourselves, let no corrupting word come out of your mouth, and obey and submit for your own profit and for your own joy. And I'll tell you what, when a church is firing on all these cylinders, when the the sheep are doing their duty and the shepherds are doing their duty, then the church begins to enjoy the bountiful blessings of, of our Savior. He smiles on, he blesses an obedient church. Not one of you, when you've been in a stage in your life looking for a church, you've never said, you know, I'd like to go to a church that just seems to be getting hammered and that that nothing good is going on there and that the Lord's not doing anything there and they've been shrinking by the year for the last five decades. I want to go there. No, we all want to be someplace where the Lord is working. Well, make that happen with your obedience. 
John MacArthur has famously said that church is only as strong as effective as its weakest member. So don't be that person. I, for one, can intend to continue preaching the gospel and teaching the glorious truths of our Savior to anyone who will listen, to shepherd the flock of God that is among us. I, I've preached to huge auditoriums of people. I've preached to three. I'll do anything in between. That determination depends on no one except me. That's my calling, regardless of what anyone else says about it. When a man was put out of the church at Corinth, Paul instructed what they were to do when, if this man were to repent. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 2.7 says they were to graciously forgive and comfort him lest he be swallowed up by excessive sorrow to reaffirm your love for him. But in the meantime, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5 that this man was delivered to Satan so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. As Grant read a moment earlier, Matthew 18 is very clear. Heaven agrees with these decisions. That what is bound on earth is bound in heaven. 1 Corinthians 5.12 says revilers are to be removed. You know, I was recently reminded that the church of Jesus Christ and you individually, you may be the sole representative, the sole image of Christ that an unbeliever sees. And so that's why purity and holiness is so important. You're probably guessing the reality, and I'll just say it out loud so you don't have to think it. When someone's put out of the church because they refuse to get in step with obeying Christ and humbly seek a holy walk with the Lord, unfortunately, what almost always happens is they tend to simply find another church with no standards that prides itself on being the church at Thyatira. Oh, we're all about love. All that church does is they add to the self-deception of the one who needs to feel the weight of being separated from the body of Christ. They need to feel the weight of it. The church of Jesus Christ is God's representative to a dying world. I, for one, refuse to play church. I refuse. I will not play church. This is not my church. This is not your church. This is Christ's church. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another and eagerly looking for the coming of Christ. And I, for one, I, I always get excited when I think about what the Lord will do through a church that is willing to obey Christ all the way to the end. A local church that will stay submissive to the head of the church. Revelation 1 pictures the churches of Jesus Christ as lampstands, as, as a light to the darkened world all around them. And Jesus is pictured as standing in the midst of them. And I want to remind you of the reality of who our master is. From John's vision in Revelation 1, in the middle of the lampstands, the middle of the churches, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters and having in his right hand seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword which comes out of his mouth. And his face was like the sun shining in its power. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. That's our Lord. He is our new covenant Savior who bought us 
with his life, with his own blood. He's our master. We are his slaves. And to the church that will be faithful to Christ, even unto the purification of the church, to each of the seven churches of Revelation, Christ made promises to the faithful, to the true believers among them. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. He who overcomes will never be hurt by the second death. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. To him who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds unto the end, To him I will give authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my father, I will give him the morning star. He who overcomes will be thus clothed in white garments. I will never erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God and he will never go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. For the church that will not obey Christ, the future is bleak. For the church that will obey Christ, the future is bright and exciting and glorious. I, along with all of our elders, have a deep abiding longing to see what the Lord will do through Grace Bible Church if we will remain true. There does reach a point, though, where we must all be like Joshua. And we must make our own proclamation. And I make mine now that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will be obedient. You have to make that determination on your own. Tonight, we're getting right back on track. We're going to be faithful to proclaiming truth. We're going to continue in our series on the millennium looking longingly for the coming of our Master, our King, and our Savior. May God have mercy on those upon which discipline sits heavily. May they feel the weight of being turned over to Satan until such that they turn to Christ and turn to us, both of whom will eagerly receive them back. And may God bless the believer and the church, which will bow humbly to the King. And in that vein, would you bow with me for a moment? We're bowing together in humility. We don't need any musicians or we don't need any any music. We have a very simple choice. And the Lord Jesus put the choice this way. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. We've had a difficult family time this morning so we can join the humbled worshiper Job in saying, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We are always to be those who give thanks. Being humbled should engender thanks. Amen. You are dismissed.